Welcome to Revealing Men, conversations that pull back the curtain, revealing the inner lives of men. I'm Randy Flood, psychotherapist and director of the Men's Resource Center of West Michigan. I'd like to welcome William Keepin to the Revealing Men podcast. William is the co-author, along with Cynthia Bricks, of the book Gender Equity and Reconciliation International. It's a book written about 30 years of healing what they call the most ancient wound in the human family. So I'd like to first thank you, William, for taking the time to to come here and, and speak with me today. Thank you, Randy. It's a great joy and privilege to be on your podcast. Yes. Well, I'd like to formally introduce you with your bio. I thought that was well written in the book that I read. William Keepit is a PhD. He's a co-founder of the Gender Equity and Reconciliation International. And I think if I pronounce this correctly, the Sadiana Institute, is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Uh, He's a mathematical physicist with training in contemplative spirituality and transpersonal psychology. And he might want to explain some of that for us, for those of us who might not know what that is. His research has been on global warming and sustainable energy, which is pretty important um, for us today as we are with those who are in Hawaii currently struggling with the phenomenon, I think, of global warming, and they're calling it quite apocalyptic over there. Um, But he's he's, um, published widely on environmental science, quantum physics, ecology, archetypal cosmology, comparative mysticism, divine feminine theology, and principles of social change leadership. He is an evolutionary leader, a Finhorn Foundation fellow, and board member of the Graf Legacy Project. His previous books, besides the one we're talking about today, include Divine Duality, Song of the Earth, and Belonging to God, Spiritual Spirituality, Science, and a Universal Path of Divine Love. So well-versed in, in, in many different human sciences and such, and so I'm really looking forward to our conversation. To start us off into talking about um, the Jerry movement, um, I want to just point out in the beginning of the book, Desmond Tutu, who I'm a big fan of and most of us are, he says, no matter how much we dwell on differences, which he says are important, we're ultimately far more alike than different. And in the foreword by Desmond's daughter, Miss Tutu Van Firth, she says the work of Jerry addresses the original wound to which all other traumas can be traced that the Jerry workshops allow participants to see their own woundedness and how from the foundation of their own hurt, they inflicted hurt onto others. She says that the participants ultimately learn that we are all survivors of systemic mutilation of our essential identity. So I thought that was profound, you know, bring the tutus in for, for an introduction to this. Um, but I want you to explain in your own words of, of, to our listeners um, a little bit about the the Gender Equity Reconciliation International. Well, thank you, Randy. Um, This is the name of the organization that uh, I founded with some colleagues uh, 31 years ago, and it has evolved since then. Uh, The essence of it is that we bring women and men and also people of all uh, sexual and gender orientations together because the the premise of it is that no one group of gendered 
kind of identity, identified people can heal this crisis on their own. Yeah. It began really working with women and men. And the basic recognition was that both women and men are afflicted by gender injustice and each needs the other for a true and complete healing. And that was really the foundation that we had, you know, back in the last century, we had the women's movement, uh, which really mm -hmm. got going, you know, a couple hundred years earlier, but <clears throat> had its version in the 20s, you know, with getting the vote for women. And then um, in the 60s, of course, it kind of flared up. And then we had a men's movement that began. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, more in the probably late 70s, 80s, Robert Bly and others right. who really got the men's movement going and a whole conversation about masculinity. But they developed in parallel pretty much. And so this grew out of a recognition that at some point, these two communities need to come together and begin to work together right. to really transform the relations between men and women. And then, of course, when we got started in the early 90s, we started there. And then in the late 90s, the AIDS crisis emerged. And as you know, many men were dying of AIDS and there was a whole... Um, really profound social crisis around that. Mm -hmm. And that was when we first did some of our programs for uh, gay and straight people together. Okay, um, And that was very remarkable for many of us because we began learning in the heterosexual community about the special forms of suffering that were happening, uh, particularly among gay men at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, with the AIDS crisis. And that was the beginning of, of broadening our focus to include LGBTQ people. And we have a special program area for that now uh, that's led by people who identify in that way. Mm. Um, but most of our work, the majority of our work is still within what we might call the gender binary, working with people who identify as men or women, um, you know, irrespective of their sexual orientation. Right. And so the essence of what we do is we bring, you know, people together for a level of deep truth telling that doesn't normally happen out in the society. Yeah. And we go into the challenges and pain together in a mm -hmm. sense. And through that, we go through a kind of collective transformation. In fact, we call it collective alchemy. The idea being that we go into the challenges and uh, injustices together. Right. And we sort of move through that pain and then we come through it to another whole kind of reconciliation and then a glimpsing of a new possibility for men and women to, to live together yeah. in a whole, new, a whole new gender dynamic. So right. we're really talking about healing the past and healing the structural injustices of the past and the individual ways they've impacted us, and then rewriting the future, rewriting the future of gender and sexuality for humanity. Wow, and what a beautiful vision. And I, and you know, for our listeners, um, the way that I see this, what attracted me to, to talking with um, William was is that I see it intersecting with the work that we do with men at the Men's Resource Center. And, and similarly, we are trying to help them heal from some of the uh, toxic aspects of male socialization um, and, and how it can be injurious to their full humanity. And so the, the work we do in our men's groups 
you know, intersects quite well with this macro movement that you're participating in and creating, you know, healing not only for men, but for women. And the interesting part about your work is, is that you bring men and women together. Um, and so um, you talk about gender oppression is a human invention and it can only be transformed by human intervention. And so say a little bit about the mixed, the mixed groups and why you find that um, a good format. And some people would say, how can you heal the injuries for, of patriarchy and all the things that have happened and the, and the pains that have men have you know, inflicted upon women or maybe vice versa? How can you do that putting them together in the same room? And so say a little bit about that. <laughs> <clears throat> well, you know, that's a very good question, uh -huh. and it can go awry. Yeah, I read about uh, that. <laughs> it sounds like you've experienced it. I was like, oh, man, this guy said that, or how are you guys going to handle it? And then yes. you went with it. You know, you said, we're going to go with what is happening in the room right now and not go with our plan format. And I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> well, it it became necessary. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about how it began because yeah. that gives a bit of the story. Sure. And it also says why we were able to experiment so, you know, wildly with this because this work began, I'm an environmental scientist by training. So for about 25 years, I worked on the climate crisis, mm. working on, you know, sustainable energy policies and strategies for abating global warming. Yeah, And just as a, an aside, uh, what you're saying about what's happening in Hawaii now, what's been happening is just so heartbreaking to me because <clears throat> back then the carbon dioxide emissions were half what they were today. And we were basically showing that the warming is happening and they were predicting this climate warming with the extremes, weather extremes of more flooding and more fires. And But we didn't have any of that yet. Mm. It was, but it was well predicted in the climate models, yeah. uh, even for all their inaccuracies. And so it's very heartbreaking to see so much of this coming to pass, but I hope it really helps us to wake up and take these things seriously. I hope so. That's an aside, but yeah. I just, yeah. Maybe I could have you come back and we could talk about that just in terms of, <clears throat> I think there's a lot that intersects with masculinity and kind well, of control, controlling the earth and, you know. Exactly. Yeah. All of those factors. Yeah. So we might touch on that later. Yeah. But basically, the, so the way the work began was that I was working in essentially what I call the mainstream environmental movement at that time, mm -hmm. which was largely a group of scientists and lawyers, scientists who were studying the effects, which I was a scientist, and then lawyers who were looking at the laws and trying to enforce, you know, environmental laws um, on, you know, violating corporations and other organizations. So um, that's kind of what we were doing in those years. And... Of course, the awareness of climate change was just emerging at that time, especially in the in the late mid to late eighties and nineties. So, um, in the context of that, within the environmental movement, there were some Me Too violations taking place. Essentially, we didn't have that language then, okay. but there were certain you know classic uh, sexual harassment. Uh, dynamics that were happening, and they were ta totally taboo to talk about, of course, wow. which okay. is the norm. Back then, and sure, so yeah. we had this kind of contradiction that here we were trying to heal and transform our relationship with the natural ecology of the earth, but we had this toxic crisis in the human ecology of the organization that couldn't right. be talked about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So a group of us came together to address this issue. 
Now, uh, this was back in 1992. And at that time, I had no idea what we were getting into. I just knew that we needed to address it. I had been, prior to that, I had done a training with a psychiatrist, Stanislav Grof, who you may know of. He was an early psychedelic pioneer who then developed a breathwork modality that he originally called holotropic breathwork. Correct. But it was a very powerful way of sort of working with the psycho-spiritual development and bringing the unconscious bits of ourselves into more conscious awareness. Yes. And in working with him, I had then worked with some clinical psychologists for about six years who were working with uh, people who had sexual trauma, sexual violation. And in the course of that work, I saw the profound, shattering experience of sexual violence and mm -hmm. sexual trauma in particular as well as gender oppression. So I was very attuned to these things. That was kind of my part-time work. And then my day job was in this environmental uh, science work that I was doing and activism. And so I was aware of the signs and symptoms of these issues. Uh, and I could see of, of sexual trauma issues. And I could see that, and I heard whisperings. We all heard whisperings about things that were happening within right. the organization. And it wasn't one organization, it was a network. So it wasn't one particular right. organization. So what we did was we convened the first couple of these events in the 90s, early 1992. And I got to tell you, we had created a forum for the truth to be spoken and it blew the lid off. Wow. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you know, it was much, we had a little workshop design. We're going to do this little process and then that, and then we'll have a nice lunch. And uh, it just kind of blew open. Uh, because we gave a forum for something that really needed to be spoken, but yeah. was under wraps and creating a lot of pain. Right. And so it was very powerful. So we quickly realized that um, in a certain sense, those first couple of uh, you know events, we were organizing them internally with colleagues. So this was not a public event. And we realized that you know, just talking through these issues was not enough and we really needed to go back to the drawing board. And so for the first few years, we organized these events a couple times a year with colleagues, private in-house events, not public events. And so we could be quite experimental. Right. And we could try different things. And so we started bringing in the breath work, like, like I mentioned, and we brought in council process and psychodrama and these different really powerful modalities for right. working with these issues with women and men together. And that, because we were working internally, we could be experimental. And of course, we stepped in plenty of potholes and learned kind of what, what to do, what yeah. not to do, <laughs> what works exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh -huh. and, and we could we could afford to be experimental like that because we were sticking to a, right. a, a group of, a larger group of colleagues who more or less knew each other. And then, and on those early events, we called them gender and ecology. That hmm. was the name of the program. And the subtitle was, are there parallels between exploitation of the earth and exploitation of the feminine? Wow. Yeah. You know, so the nice so intersection that, was, that you, you named right there. Yeah, it was. And it was something that everyone inherently knew. Yes, there are some parallels there that in some ways the earth 
our relationship with the earth does parallel some of the you know oppressive relationships with the feminine yes both within men and within the human population generally right, right. Yeah. It, it so that's how the work got started. Okay. Yeah. And then just to finish that evolution that right. in the mid nineties, we also got very inspired by what was happening in South Africa mm-hmm. with the post apartheid, you know, government, and then uh, the, particularly the truth and reconciliation process. And it bore some resemblance. Of course, it was very different, but we were convening forums for deep and painful truths to come out yeah. from both the women's side and the men's side. Right. And, so there was a kind of parallel to what Desmond Tutu was doing. And we realized we need a truth and reconciliation process for gender yeah. as well as for race. Exactly. And so we changed the name of our work from gender, eco- gender and ecology to gender reconciliation because we were so inspired by Tutu, never imagining that we would ever even go to South Africa, much less meet Tutu, which all happened <laughs> years later. So... <laughs> Yeah, I'm yeah. sure that was beautiful. When you say that, you know, gender work for real change cannot be taught. You, you, you guys talk about it in the book that it's not a, necessarily a cognitive process. Maybe the beginning it's conceptualized, but you're saying, you say that the harmful social constructions of gender can only be undone through deep reflection on intimate experiences, these experiential um, workshops that you do. So say a little bit about how did you evolve and move to it being more intimate, more experiential, more relational, and less didactic over time? Or did you start there knowing it had to be deep and intimate? Well, because of the way we started, we started with deep and intimate and a little wildly unbridled. Okay. If I so may say. Started, started there with a. Okay. Well, it started there because, first of all, we didn't really have a theory. Mm-hmm. or of how we were going to proceed. We had an awareness of a need that needed to be addressed. Right. And we were addressing a challenge within our professional network. And because it was a pain that was taboo to speak about, and we were now creating a, a venue for that to come forward, we sort of started right in the middle of experiential depth and a raw energy. And our challenge was how to guide that and skillfully put that train on some rails of some kind that would help it go into a skillful direction. We did have background work working with intense emotions. Uh, I had, for the years I had worked in holotropic breathwork, we had experience working with intense emotions. And, but like I said, we brought in uh, other modalities as well that enabled that, uh, like psychodrama, you know, enacting scenarios and really allow full expression, cognitive and emotional expression. Right. So we, we were sort of dropped into the deep end by virtue of the way that we began. Right. But we found that we did need some cognitive understanding of what we were doing. And we began, and that was partly where the principles of truth and reconciliation that Desmond Tutu was working with were right. very helpful. Right. And that became, began to become some of our cognitive formulation. We also began to you know, understand better the, the women's movement, the men's movement, what had happened, the history of it, the beauty of what was happening. Right. Um, and speaking to men in particular, I just want to cut to the chase. I just yeah. because I know a lot of uh, the listeners here are men. What we have discovered is that men actually are the vast majority of men that have come to our work, which are, you know, many thousands over the years, are deeply yearning for a different way of relating mm-hmm. to 
the feminine, both within themselves and with women in society, and they don't know how to do it. It has never been modeled. Right. There are, you know, there are no models for that. Um, that the majority of men realize that they're, they are sort of participating in some system that they didn't ask for. Right. Yeah. You know, it, and that it is also hurting them. Yes. And they know this at different levels of awareness. Um, and so they are yearning for something right. different, but they don't even know where to start and they've had no modeling. Right. And so what we've learned in our work is that the vast majority of men are actually hungry and thirsty mm -hmm. for a different gender dynamic. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, and yeah, that just, to me has yeah. been very, very inspiring. Yeah, we just, I discover that in our groups too that we run. Um, I mean, the late Bell Hooks, uh, you know, said the first act of patriarchy is that psychic mutilation of the, you know, softer human tissue tissue inside of men. We call it the feminine and then it gets associated with the gender binary and it gets connected to, you know, we concretize it into I'm acting like a woman and that's a sign of weakness. Exactly. Somehow, somehow you got to introduce a revision for men that this is their humanity. This, you call it, you know, we always get stuck with words and names and, and argue about what we call things, but it's it's a problem with no name, perhaps, and we're going to try to have to figure out what to call it. But reconnecting to our hearts, reconnecting to our humanity, being full, full human beings, that's the work that we do um, in trying to bust out of this gender binary that we've been stuck in. Yeah, no, it's so beautiful how yeah. you just put it. And I, yeah. I was going to mention Bell Hooks myself because yeah. she does summarize it so beautifully. Mm -hmm. And she says at one point that men are forced to self-mutilate apart yeah. men and boys. Right. In fact, I think she says boys and young men are forced to self-mutilate a part of their humanity. And if they don't do it to themselves, their peers do it for them. Correct. And this is the socialization of young men boys and young men into what is sometimes called the man box. Right. And then you, I'm sure you've heard that term. Paul Kimmel, you've yeah. heard that term. <laughs> right. Exactly. That yeah. very narrow constrictive box, yes. which men are forced to stay within, which says, you know, don't cry, don't show emotions, of course, right. except anger. Anger is allowed. Right. And all of and, and toughen up all of those kind mm. of traditional factors of male socialization. Right. And if you step out of the box, then the insults are hurled at you. Right. Of, you know, sissy and wuss and wimp and all of those things that keep you humbled to stay within the box. Yeah. And this is, um, you know, it's very challenging for men. Right. For young yeah. boys and men. Right. And and so, yeah, beautifully put what you just said. Yeah. 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 What you did in the Jerry workshops, I noticed, was similar to what Paul Kibble uh, does in his. I've seen Paul speak and, and, and had him come to the Men's Resource Center and do presentations early in the day. But he does this uh, standing, silent standing exercise, and you guys call it the silent witnessing exercise. But it's very, very similar in that he has men in the audience stand up silently if if something applies. Have you ever been hit by an older man to, to make you to stop crying. Um, and all the men in the room who experienced that would stand up and then he would say, thank you. And he'd sit down. And it was very gentle, slow. And then he would say something else. And it was a mixed gendered group. And it, you could see tears coming down women's eyes oftentimes. Cause it's like, I, I don't, I didn't know that this was happening or I just didn't know it was impacting them. And I'm wondering if you could talk about some of yours silent witnessing exercises that you do. 
in the jury workshops. Yeah, that's beautiful, Randy. Yes, so we we do do those exercises. We do it probably slightly different format, yeah. but it's very similar. Um, and we do it in different ways depending on the group that's that's present. So uh, and the kind of gender composition, and we have different sets of questions for different contexts. But the essence of it is um, one way that we often do it is we actually have the women and men face each other um, on separate sides of the room close enough to see each other clearly. And then we ask a series of questions to one group and then the other group. And it is amazing for both groups to see, first of all, how many questions they both stand for. Mm. So for example, when we ask questions about abuse um, and abuse at the hands, uh, you know, physical abuse, uh, sexual abuse, these kinds of things, um, you know, very often as many men stand for these questions as women and childhood abuse, these yeah. kinds of issues. That's, that's very surprising. When we ask uh, questions about uh, being afraid to speak um, because to the other gender, speak your truth for fear of reaction, mm -hmm. either from the other gender or from your other members of your own gender group, you know, uh, men stand for that as much as women do. Women right. don't realize how much men are self-suppressing themselves to try to fit within a norm based on their peers as being identified as a man right. or based on their peers of how it will impact women. Right. Uh, kind of thing is, is women stand for it and kind of everyone expects that they will stand for it. People don't expect that men stand for these things. Yeah. Now, there are some questions where men don't stand typically. For example, one question we ask is for the women, uh, please stand if you've ever been afraid to walk the streets alone because you're a woman. Mm. Pretty much everyone's, every woman stands for that. And then we ask the same question to the men, you know, to, if you've ever been afraid to walk the streets alone because you're a man. Very few men mm. stand for that. That then helps both sides to realize some of the differences as well. Right. Uh, and then other questions, please stand. If you've ever feared you might have to fight or die for your country. Uh, every man over, you know, 40-ish, 50-ish yeah. stands for that. Um, very few women stand for that, although, of course, that's changed in recent years. Right. Uh, yeah. with women enter the military. So anyway, it's been very instructive. And one thing that we have found in every culture we've worked in for 30-plus years Everywhere we work, women typically have the view going into the work that we are the ones who are suffering. We are the women. We're the oppressed one. Men right. have all the advantages, so men are fine. Yeah. They're, they're doing okay. But it's us who have the problem, and we're very grateful the men are coming here to kind of learn about our problems. That's how they see it going in. Right. And everywhere we've worked, women are astounded to right. learn how much men are suffering in all this. Yeah. They did not know that. Right. Typically they right. do not. Yeah. Well, because as, they Terry, yeah as Terry real says, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to talk about it in his famous book on covert depression. And, That's and right. it's like, you know, if men are socialized to suck it up and, and to not talk about it. Cause if you talk about it, um, the, the pain that you endured, then somehow you're being, uh, you're being sensitive, you're being um, weak and you're complaining and just, you know, Buck up and soldier Absolutely. on. And so when they are given permission to talk about it, 
I always think about the extent of the pain that men inflict on others often is the, is the extent of the pain that they carry. Um, it's not Absolutely. always proportionate, but oftentimes if you can give men a forum to talk about their pain, they're less likely to externalize it and pass it on to others. Absolutely. That is so crucial, Randy. And men do not have a venue to speak about these things. Mm-hmm. It is so taboo for them to talk about it. Right. So much so that I think even they too are are not aware how much they are suffering. And I think many men often think, well, I'm kind of weird because I don't really fit in and I'm suffering internally, but these other guys seem to be fine. So I yeah. guess I'm the problem. <laughs> right. You know, and so one thing men discover in men's work is right. no, we're all suffering in similar ways. Right. That is profoundly liberating in itself. Right. Yeah. Um, but just to give you an example of how our process works, a simple example, uh, the essence of where the gender equity and reconciliation work, the gift of this work, uh, for men in particular, we had, uh, this was in South Africa, we had, but we've experienced similar things uh, everywhere we work. So at one point we were doing an advance, we have intro and advanced programs and we're doing an advanced program. So everyone had been through the intro, we're doing a more advanced program. There was a woman who, told a story. Uh, She came to our work because she had been raped uh, a few months earlier in a brutal rape from a stranger. And she was facing this man in court in another month. And she came to process it in our program. And at one point she told her story as essentially as a witness, just explaining and articulating for the whole group the actual shattering experience of violation that she'd been through. And, you know, it was spellbinding. And when she finished, there was pin drop silence in the room. Yeah. And, you know, I guarantee you none of the men in that room had ever heard a story like that. And very few of the women had heard another woman really speak at that level of authenticity. And, the first person to speak was a young man, a 24-year-old man, and he was just blown away. And his mm. first words were, I don't know how to be a man anymore. Mm. And then he said, I feel traumatized. And so we worked with this young man and helped him to understand the reason that he felt traumatized was because he had truly listened to this story and taken some of the pain of this particular woman into his own heart. He Mm. was now sharing a part of her pain. Right. And this is part of the core of the work that when we experience the pain of the other as our own pain, then that transforms us both and creates a bridge across our hearts Mm. in which we have a new level of intimate connection. Right. Because we are carrying shared pain. Right. And that bonds us at an emotional level and opens us up to a transformation in each of us. And we also, the other thing that he revealed in that first statement was one of the privileges, if you will, and I put it in quotes, of patriarchy, if we use that word, and I'm going to be cautious about using that word, but of male socialization, which is that Men don't have to be aware of women's pain. Right. That's, they don't have to know about it. And in certain oppressor-oppressed systems, the oppressor 
doesn't have to know about the pain of the oppressed. Right. So when he said, I don't know how to be a man anymore, part of male kind of socialization is to not know, to care about, or even be aware of some of the ways in which women are impacted by men's ways of being. Right. There's and psychic so, reorganization going on for him in that moment. It's like there was. <laughs> yeah. And of course, he just broke yeah. down. Yeah. And the gift of that for this woman. Now, he wasn't the mm-hmm. one who, you know, committed the crime against her. But the gift of him breaking down and then other men breaking down in pain over what had happened to her right. was incredibly healing for her. Sure. Yeah, And this is something we see often in our work, that the person who actually did the violation that people are processing in the group doesn't have to be in the room. Right. If another member of their gender, men or women, if it's a woman who violated a man, another woman who truly hears this man's pain, you know, yeah. and is able to open and compassionately be present for that man right. in the ways that he needs right. can serve as a proxy. We have yeah. seen this over and over again in our work, and it's very profound. Yeah. And so just to finish that story, that young man, a year later, he joined our training. It was a life-changing experience for him, and he did a lot of processing for it afterwards. And then he joined our training a year ago and then became a facilitator of our work and now continues to facilitate our work um, in Soweto in South what a, Africa. What a wonderful story. Yeah. 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 It's a beautiful story. It is. Yeah. I I remember um, reading, you know, these, what they call meltdowns um, in your book where where just guys and and women, you know, having the courage to speak to some, some of this, you know, unspeakable pain and, and trauma that they experience. I remember the, the, the guy who spoke about being 19 years old in Vietnam and remembering, you know, that they had to pull these, I think it was five Vietnamese women and they're walking across these rice fields and they use them as kind of disposable human decoys, you know, to these That's young correct. women. And then it was a mine field. It was a mine field. They didn't know where the mines were. Going up in front of him and, you know, sacrificing so that they could get through the minefield, you know, and the laws of war and the ethics of war at the time, you know, it might've made sense, but as a human reflecting back on it, he carried incredible amounts of grief and trauma for being a part of that. He did. And it was so powerful and so beautiful to Mm. see him process this pain that he'd carried for all these years. And then uh, at the end of that whole process, if you recall in the story, there was a, an Asian woman who looked exactly like a young Vietnamese woman. I mean, she was of Asian descent. I don't think she wasn't from Vietnam, but she was from Korea or somewhere in there, one of those countries. And she walked over to him and held him and put his head in her lap and was stroking. It was, it just brought the house down because it felt like a cross-cultural interracial Mm -hmm. healing. And for her to do that for this man, I mean, he was just, you know, sobbing. Mm. And so incredibly released afterwards, um, mm. as we all were. Yeah. Yeah. Powerful. It's profound. Yeah. And I, I will say this. One thing that our work has taught me is the capacity of human beings to heal this, these deep, deep wounds. If we can but simply create the right context, have the skillful support, 
and move in and through these challenges together. Right. And to me, it's so profoundly uplifting yeah. to see, I mean, and to see men show up, I have to tell you, for example, the way, because what happens in our work, we go into these very difficult cauldrons of pain, like you just mentioned. Yeah. <clears throat> but then towards the end of the work, we don't stay there. And it's very important that having gone through that, we then shift gears completely and we give uh, we separate the men and women. We frequently in our work, we separate the men and women yeah. constantly. We come together, then we separate again. We come together, we separate again. So we're actually doing a level of men's work and women's work in parallel during this process. So yeah, it's not that we're all together. I saw, saw the wisdom of that um, when I was it's reading very, it. It's very, very yeah. important because yeah. then we come together, we have an experience together, then we separate and then we do another levels of men's work and women's work in parallel in separate spaces. Right. And then towards the end, we separate for the last time, but we, the, the assignment is for the women and the men to each create a ceremony to honor, honor and affirm yeah. and yeah. bless the other. That's beautiful. <clears throat> and the kinds so. of things we have seen men come up with to honor the women are just so astounding. Yeah. Um, uh, and we just did one this last week where we had, where the men came up, with what they called a throne of the divine feminine. Mm. And they had this beautiful chair and they decorated it with all these scarves and it made it look like this beautiful throne. <clears throat> and then they invited each woman up and invited, escorted her, you know, and brought her there and gave her flowers and various little you know, gifts and brought her there and sat her down. And then the men sitting at her feet all reflected the beautiful qualities that they saw in her. Wow. And it just, it just melts the women down because when a woman is invited into a group of men like that, it's not necessarily a positive experience in her past. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no doubt. <clears throat> and so we see these incredible, beautiful gestures from men of all different backgrounds right. who, who feel so grateful to have the opportunity to acknowledge the beauty and the power of the feminine and of women, and to be able to express that in some way, right. in a skillful way, is something that they love. We've done this in high schools with boys and girls. We've done it in universities. We've done it with members of yeah. parliament, with the members of parliament, the men in South Africa, these were men, parliamentarians. They built a gigantic towering structure of chairs, like 25 chairs that they built it all the way to the ceiling. <laughs> And then when the women came in, they laid, they sat them there, and then they came and said, "This is the um, this structure represents the patriarchy, and our commitment is to topple this entire thing." And one man on each end pulled out the bottom chair, wow. and this entire thing came crashing down on the floor. <laughs> very, very dramatic, and the women were just, <gasps> you know, <clears throat> uh -huh. and they were so moved by this. What an and the, inner, the, the intersection of masculine and, and I mean, it's like it's guys being guys, right? They're building this huge structure, right. and, you know, and, and putting it together, balancing it out and playing it together, but to represent something that's very human and very healing and, and very honoring. It's what a nice Truly. mixture. It's so astounding. And and just to finish this last piece yeah. in this last one. So the men did this honoring of the divine feminine and kind of, essentially giving back the female sovereignty to each woman one at a time 
honoring her in particular for her particular gifts because we had been with them for three and a half days. And so they had gotten to know each woman and that was such a validation. And then the women did a similar ceremony, but the way they opened it is they had the men, they invited them. If they were willing to close their eyes, they could keep them open if they wanted to, but they invited them to close their eyes. And then the women lined up in two rows facing each other and they had the men come down that row uh, <clears throat> with what they call an angel wash, where the men had their eyes closed and the women are singing this beautiful chant. It f- literally felt like a chorus of angels are singing to the men. And they're basically gently touching and stroking the man <clears throat> and bringing him down a, a line of, you know, 10 women on each side, just touching and blessing and singing to him. And wow. I'm telling you, coming through that, by the time you got through the end of that, you just felt bathed in love and yeah. bathed in this kind of the beauty of the the feminine healing energies, just, you know, you know, suffusing your body and your being. Mm-hmm. So when they did that and then they sat us all down, we're all on cloud nine. It's like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> and well, this is the most yeah. natural thing. Uh, it's, it's just part of the, and this, these, Ceremonies are generated by the participants themselves. As facilitators, we never tell them what to do. Right. We never give them any guidelines because that would be presumptuous. You know, they right. have to come up with it on their own. And that's the beauty of what emerges in the world. Right. And the creativity yeah. that you see. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. And I and I appreciate, I mean, again, you said it was a lot of trial and error, but the sequencing of the uh, workshops as I read it was, I thought was brilliant and and like you were saying earlier is having the, you know, the men together and the women together and what can happen when, when you just have just the women together to be able to speak to some of what has happened to them in the safety of, of their gender, <clears throat> well, having experienced it together and the same for men. And I think that's the power of the men's groups that I run that men can find a lot of safety. They're afraid at first, but when the elders in the group yes. begin to speak, they gives the the newer members permission to share also their pain. And I had one guy one time, you know, who was sexually abused and I talked to him about joining a men's group. And he was like, if you think talking about my sexual abuse is going to be healing for me, I would rather you tell me I got to cut my fingers off or something like that, that that's (laughs) going to heal my sexual abuse and talking to men about being sexually abused. Um, And so I, I just think the power of speaking to our pain and the pain we cause others and experiencing compassion and experiencing grace um, around also with accountability. When we do domestic violence groups for men, there's, right. there's compassion for the pain they experience, but there's also the cross section of being accountable for the pain that you pass and both have to go together. Yeah. That is so beautiful, Randy. <clears throat> I just love hearing you talk and I just want to honor the work you're doing. I'm telling you, men need this work. They are yearning for it everywhere. And in some ways, even though we think of men as having all the privileges in the gender revolution, they have been some of the most underserved because the gender revolution, if you call it that, kind of started perhaps with feminism. Um, And then it came with LGBTQ. Uh, The men's movement came a little later but then, uh, the, you know, the kind of the LGBTQ and queer revolution, which has kind of been very prominent in the, in the last couple of decades, and rightly so. I mean, that has been such 
an underserved arena right. of the gender revolution. Right. But, and so there is, you know, an LGBT, a, a kind of queer revolution taking place and it's great. It's fantastic. Right. But there's also a femininity revolution taking place for women and a masculinity revolution taking place for men. Right. We are all breaking out of these narrow, rigid gender boxes that we've put in. Right. And men are in dire need of this and yearn for it. And what we found, as I said, is that most men want this. They want a different relationship, both to masculinity and to the feminine. They want to find a new way of relating that actually is fully validating of who they are. Right. And one thing I would say that we have seen earlier, what I said was that women discover in our work how much men suffer and are awakened to that. Men discover in our work, they know that women have challenges and are suffering, but they realize what it's like to walk through the world as women. They realize, yeah. for example, one of the questions we ask, you know, in that silent witnessing, uh, particularly younger, uh, in younger audiences, university audiences, and we'll ask the women, you know, please stand if any time in the last two weeks you had taken any steps or measures to protect yourself from becoming the potential victim of a sexual assault. Right. You know, the, most of the women stand for that. Right. Same question to the men. Most of the men, almost none of them stand for that. Right. So in those realizations, men realize, I want to create a different world. This is not okay right. with me that it's this way. And right. what we've, what I would say, one thing we've learned that men learn in our work is that the greatest male privilege is not any of the social advantages that are afforded to men, you know, in this kind of gender injustice system. Right. The greatest male privilege is to actually deconstruct that system and create a new system of gender equality across these different categories. I like that. I like that. Yeah. And yeah. I think like that is men... You constructed and in those men in that uh, in the workshop did that symbolically, right? And, and exactly, they, and it was very powerful for them to build it and then destroy it. <laughs> That's it. That's it. And they they actually realize this right. is what I want to do with my life. And those men, the other thing that happens is that people make a commitment based on whatever level of engagement. But several of those men met in, in Parliament of South Africa made a commitment to continue to do this work. And several of them have stayed true to that commitment to this day. And they helped us get the work out all throughout the country over the uh, succeeding years after that. So right. this is something, this is a really powerful place for men to begin to transform their identity and shed some of their own negative conditioning and reclaim the fullness of their humanity. Right. And I think, you know, from a spiral dynamics or integral psychology, you think of the evolution of consciousness and, you know, the mythopoetic movement, Robert Bly's, you know, getting men together. That was wonderful, but we know what the criticism was. The criticism was they were, they were a space to talk about their own pain, but they weren't at that point yet talking about the pain that they were passing to women and they weren't doing that other work. And it feels like, you know, the Jerry movement <clears throat> evolved that and provided a space for what Robert Bly was trying to do with the men, which is important work. And then also then to bridge that into working with the women and the pain that they um, passed on and, and being able to have the capacity to hear hear their pain and take that in. And so that's the beauty of your guys' work. 
That's yeah. so beautiful, Randy. And yeah. we got, we did get from Marion Woodman, uh, right towards the end of her life, we got a beautiful letter from her saying, this work that you're doing is the next step. She had read the first uh, edition of our book called Divine Duality um, and sent us that letter. And that was so validating because, of course, she did work with Robert Bly, bringing women and men together back in the late 90s. Um, but she was validating that the level of work that we were doing, I mean, it's an evolution, you know, how that is. The work, uh, these, the needs evolve. But I, I really agree with you. I think this is really crucial. And we've got, we work with men's organizations um, and we're very open to working with more. So I'm really thrilled, you know, to learn about the work you're doing. Um, we have worked with the Mankind Project, which I'm sure you're aware of. Um, for a number of years, yes. uh, they bring a number of their men to our programs and we've co-sponsored programs. We've also worked with another uh, organization called Illumin, which was founded right. by Richard Rohr, you know, the yeah. kind of progressive yeah. uh, priest, Richard Rohr and th that community. And the, we've worked with different groups like that that have been really helpful for bringing more men to our work. And... That's been a real win-win. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, you know, we're trying to help people understand that, you know, there are a lot of times when you talk about gender issues, some people think that the privilege of masculinity and, and being a man is, is a place of, of, of peace and, and dominance and, and, and buoyancy, but it's not good for men to be in that place of dominance and, and privilege. There's no spiritual guru I've ever heard or read talks about being in that space as a human is good for our soul, right? It just isn't. Right. It just it isn't. isn't. So to, to return for us to recognize that, yeah. And, and you know, just one other story of a, a couple who came to our work. The man was had been married 30 years. He had done a lot of men's work. You know, he was a Buddhist practitioner. He was engaged in men's work uh, for years and led it. And he had a wife of 30 years. He went back to her. He was blown away by what he heard. He went right. back to his wife and he said, I am just so blown away by the stories I heard from these women, right. what they've been through. Yeah. And he said, I just am so grateful to you. I'm grateful that you did not have to go through these things. And his wife looked at him and said, are you a crazy man? She said, of course I went through those things. Right. And she told him stories she had <laughs> never told him in 30 years of marriage. And he was just blown away. And that shows there's a level of awareness. Now, of course, some couples would have told those stories. It's not like every married couple wouldn't. But in this case, they were, you know, beautiful marriage all those years. But those stories had never come forward. And that's symbolic of a level of men's experience of which women are totally unaware and a level of women's experience of which men are totally unaware. Right. And only by having that level of awareness deeply shared, can we then transmute that and transmute our different forms of pain and then co-create a viable future together? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the essence of what we're, what right. we're engaging in. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Um, you guys, you mentioned this, and I, other authors have mentioned this because it's based on 
um, qualitative and quantitative studies, but they say the best metric um, to to assess a, a nation's um, level of peacefulness is not its wealth or its you know its democracy or a particular religion religion, but it's its it's its level of violence against women. And I'm wondering how can how is it that we can reduce that? There's a lot going on in that statement, but when you can have less violence toward women, I think that says something about. This, the, the consciousness of the men in that country, if there's a decreased level, because the enemy of violence is, is, is empathy and connection to our own hearts. Because, so if there's less violence toward women, there's something going on in that culture there's a, that's a metric of health, I would imagine. I, I think that's absolutely right. And I'm not an, an expert on these right. things, but I was very struck by that research as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, that book, Sex and World Peace, which really provides a statistical analysis of yes. that. But the essence of it, what you're saying is true. In a culture that has less violence against women, that means there's a different level of socialization of men yes. around traditional kind of structures that enable that kind of violence. Yeah. And there's somehow a, a more level, a greater level of some kind of compassionate, empathic resonance across right. the genders in some way. Yeah. Um, and what we, what I feel is what you're saying is so true that a foundational level of transforming the culture right. is to really work with this issue between men and women. For example, we work uh, in Costa Rica and we had a prominent professor tell us there, Costa Rica has no military Right. <laughs> you know, Costa Rica has not had a military for 70 years, he said, but there's a war going on in every household. Wow. And it's between the male and female socialization <clears throat> that has taken place. We had a similar thing from a Japanese coll colleague who told us Japan is a peaceful country, but there's a war going on in every household. Wow. There is the gender dynamic. What we've learned in our work is that much of the conflict between that takes place between men and women in the home is actually them trying to heal the larger cultural and social gender dynamic as it plays out in their particular relationship. Interesting. <clears throat> and so a and large tragic. part of what they're trying to heal, tragic, yeah. what they're trying to heal in their bedroom and in their living room is actually the larger cultural dysfunction that is being channeled through their particular relationship. And they can think it's me. You know, our marriage is so in trouble because of these dynamics. And they don't even realize, actually, what's coming through your particular marriage is this larger, unhealed, collective social challenge right. of gender yes. imbalance. Right. <clears throat> and that we need to take it back to that level and heal it at that collective level. And that is yeah. one of the principles of our work is that we need to heal this at the level where it emerged, which is in communities and groups and in the culture and in right. the society. That's why it's so important to bring groups of women and men together. And then what happens is we realize that we have all been betrayed by this system. And we're all basically sitting with the shackles of gender oppression and trying yes. to work through those. Yes. And when we see that across the gender divide, we see it within the gender categories and across the gender categories, then we realize we've all been betrayed by this. And that breaks through to another level and those shackles begin to crumble like they're made of clay. That's one of the reasons that we say... This gender injustice is thousands of years old, but it's only a few days deep. Wow, it only takes like a few days 
to realize in a group of women and men, for example, doing this deep level of work, right. after a few days, we all come to realize, my God, we've all been betrayed in different ways and it's by a system that none of us want. And we've been basically living in structural injustice and we want free of it. Right. It's quite amazing what happens. Wow. <clears throat> and we did a research project in South Africa with a group of men and women who went through this process for a year. They did one of our programs at the beginning of the year, one at the end of the year, and then a monthly follow-up in between. And the researchers concluded at the end that the men and women were excavated their gender experiences and liberated themselves from the shackles of gender conditioning and came into a whole new way of relating to each other. That was really profound because yeah. that wasn't just us advertising our work, but that was university researchers working with a cohort of students right. over time. They've now just have begun uh, phase two of their r research there. So it's very exciting to see this starting to come into academia and being researched actively. Yeah, it's like it's, it's a... We spend a lot of energy and time teaching kids how to read, write, and do, you know, arithmetic, which is important. Um, you're a mathematician. <laughs> you understand that. Um, exactly. But, but I think there's so much more we could be doing in a compulsory education um, on, a, on a macro level to address these issues. So true. And creating so true. And actually, healing. It's very true. And one of the things the researchers concluded that, of course, yeah. was music to my ears, because, right. but they said these kinds of transformative programs should be, should be mandatory Correct. for all students entering the university environment. And of course, I love that because, you know, for us, that would be great. But Amen. still, what they're saying is so true. Right. Young men and women coming out of the households, coming into the university, if they could have this kind of training Early on in there, it would change so many factors. I'm not saying it would solve everything, but right. it would increase their awareness. It would help them to take more responsibility in their social interactions and engagements with one another. It would help them to realize how much, you know, young men and women are suffering in ways right. they don't even know otherwise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation, and I would I want to I found this in your in your guys's book, <clears throat> and to conclude with this quote that I think notes the uh, spiritual dimensions of of the Jerry work and in the group therapy I do with men, I see this happening in the room. I, that's why I always call it a sacred space when I'm doing beautiful this group work. And, it, and you guys say in the in the book it says as one person shares their heart's truth. The light ray of truth pierces the other's hearts, each in a particular way. <clears throat> this creates an invisible thread of heart connection with spiritual lifeblood flows from each pierced heart back to the person who shared their truth. As others in the group share the truth, the same process happens again. And in this way, each person's heart is pierced multiple times by the deep truths of every person in the group. This weaves an invisible internet of light and shared lifeblood among all the mutually interpierced hearts. Beautiful. Of what, it, uh, what happens, right? That is what happens. And that, I love that you picked that part out of the book. <laughs> it's also one of my favorite parts of the book. And what happens is that this invisible network of light linking our hearts, sometimes we call it the internet of the heart. Right. <laughs> 
Yeah, or God, or or it's it's exactly spirit or something. We have words for it, but we know on an energetic level, this is a spiritual moment when these transformations are happening. It really is, and what we realize is that we are thereby carrying each of the others in our own hearts. Yes. And then what happens is the veils of separate separation drop away. Yes. And we see one another soul to soul. Yeah. That is such an exquisite moment that I think we're all yearning for. Yes. And we realize that, yeah, that each one of us is this living soul in a human body. And what a blessing when we can tell these stories that link up our hearts in that way and enable us to see that deeper truth of our shared humanity across the differences. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you, William Keepin. Dr. Keepin, <laughs> for coming and, talk, <laughs> and talking to us today on, on the Real Vealing Men's podcast. And, and our listeners, I'm sure, really enjoyed our time together. Well, and last thing I'll say is that, you know, I am a mathematical physicist. That was my <laughs> early training. And people sometimes say, <clears throat> how? <clears throat> how did you move from, you know, quantum physics to this gender stuff, <laughs> to this, you know, path of divine love across the different religions. And what I like to say, and I said, it may sound kind of cutesy, but it's actually true. Science is a quest for truth. The deepest truth mm. is love. Yeah. And the deepest form of love is this agape, this profound divine love. And so to me, it was actually a natural quest because we live in a culture that we are enamored with a love of science, but we have failed to develop a science of love. Wow. And wow. so to me, this is actually working on really systematically developing <clears throat> an effective practice of love and a science of love. Beautiful. What a way to end the science of love. Let's keep at it. And there's sure there's more to learn, right? And yes. Um, well, um, thank you for um, talking to us today and thank you for co-authoring the book and and um, for making some time for us today. Well, thank you for your good work, Randy. I just, just from talking to you, I know the importance of what you're doing and I just totally support it. <laughs> Such a joy to meet you and speak yes. with you. And I look forward to continuing. Yes, thanks, William. Thanks for listening to another episode of Revealing Men. If you're looking for more information about counseling, coaching, and consultative services, please visit the Men's Resource Center of West Michigan online at menscenter.org. Also, feel free to contact us on our website if you have questions about this segment, ideas for a topic, or would like to be a guest on the Revealing Men podcast. Please take a moment to subscribe and leave us a rating so others can find us. Be well and have a great day.